Good day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to our ninth episode of Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia. Our theme for Series 6 taking the Australian startup ecosystem from good to great, continues as we reassess our most chilling episode, and the episode that came closest to home. Back in Series 2, we did a special episode on failure, inspired by the recent failure of my startup, Moore's Cloud. Four years on, everything looks different. It turns out that my points of failure have become some of my strengths. So we're reassessing failure on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by MYOB. Running a startup is pretty cool, but doing the books isn't. MYOB makes it easier. For your free trial, visit myob.com slash twista. Twista is sponsored by the University of Technology, Sydney, driving the next generation of entrepreneurs. UTS is equipping a new breed of startup founders by engaging, inspiring, and connecting driven students. If you'd like to mentor, invest in, or support our startups, email startups at uts.edu.au. Twista is also sponsored by Creative3. The future is creative. Seize it at Creative3 on the 14th of September in Brisbane. Learn more at creative3.co. Recently, I listened to a speaker who really hit home with one of the lines that resonates long after you've heard it. She said, I need to do poorly before I do well. And this episode is a story of me doing poorly. Let me step back and explain. Now, in the middle of 2012, I became obsessed with the cheap computing platforms that were becoming available. The Raspberry Pi is the most obvious of those. For less than 50 bucks, you had all of the connected computing power you needed to do pretty much anything you wanted. And it turned out that I wanted to make colored lights with this. So I prototyped something that allowed you to adjust the color of your home lights via a web API. I reckoned that this was going to be something that everyone would love. They'd be able to build apps for. It would be beautiful and wonderful and a huge product. And so I started to design a product and build a team. And I did neither of these particularly well. It wasn't that the product was a bad design. In fact, it is now part of the permanent collection at the Powerhouse Museum. It's an award-winning design, and it wasn't a bad team. There are some real stars in that team who helped make this product a reality in basically record time. But I can't say that I knew what I was doing. I thought I did, but well, well, as they say, you need to do poorly before you do well, and I did rather poorly. Now, the startup lasted more or less two years, and then it shut down. And then I had to rebuild my career and my savings from nothing. Both of them had basically been wiped out. And part of that rebuilding was this show, was This Week in Startups Australia. 
And somewhere in the second series, I really started to understand that I wanted to take what was at that time this very fresh story of failure, and I wanted to turn it into an episode. And we actually got three people to speak to us about the failures of their businesses. But what we're going to do today and what now follows is me being interviewed by my very good buddy and fellow entrepreneur, Matt Allen, about what it felt like to fail when that failure was very fresh. G'day, this is Mark Pesci. I'm here today with Matt Allen. We're doing something a little bit different in this segment because actually I've asked Matt to interview me. So Matt, take it over. Hey everybody, I'm Matt, uh, Matt Allen from Melbourne. I'm a Director of Founder Institute and I'm here to talk to Mark about Moore's Cloud. Um, specifically, about the end of Moore's Cloud. Mm. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, let's just go back to the beginning and tell us um, what Moore's Cloud is and um, and the point in time where you thought it was going to be huge. Well, I guess it was the middle of 2012 and I started to understand that it was possible to get connected devices that were going to be very inexpensive. The Raspberry Pi was sort of the first device that I saw and went, okay, this could actually be used to drive all sorts of things. And I'd been, I had been fascinated by full-spectrum LED lighting for a very long time. And all of those ideas sort of jumbled up in my head in August of 2012 and really was very quickly able to prototype something, show it to people, get them excited, build a team, and move to a Kickstarter, which we launched in October 2012, where we tried to raise $700,000. We ended up raising a quarter million, which is still very good for a Kickstarter, well within the top percent, but was below the goal, so we didn't make it. So we had to make a decision about whether we wanted to move forward. And at the same time, we were trying to understand what product we were selling, what market we were selling to find all of that fit. And we changed the form factor of what we were selling, which was a cube that was loaded with lights that we called the light into a string, which we called the holiday. So essentially Christmas lights, essentially the same software, essentially the same hardware, but a different form factor made it much easier for people to understand, made it much easier for investors to understand. And we started to move forward with that in March of 2013. We shipped the product in December, exactly a year ago today, the customers got the first product. We're recording this in December 2014 and uh, took it to market. Right, cool. So that was 12 months ago. So over the next, over the last 12 months, when did your spidey sense kick in? When did you think that things may not have been on track? We went to America, as a, and I would normally go as part of the launch festival. We went, we showed the product off there, got some interest from some of the sort of more um, corporate-oriented VC funds, uh, took it out to try to also get some sales channels built. And we became very clear that the price point, this is 199 was actually high for what the market expectation for what Christmas lighting should be. Now, we hadn't really sold it as this thing that you would use all year round and not just two weeks a year on the tree, but it would actually go and live in the kids' room or go and live in the playroom or that it actually was lighting for your entire life, not this one thing. And so getting over that threshold was first you had to do it with investors and then you'd have to do it with the market. And we were raising capital, a couple of hundred thousand dollars because we'd really done all of this. We managed to go from a design on a piece of paper to shipping a product to market 
on less than $150,000 for a hardware product. It's amazing. I don't think anyone's ever done that. The price for having done that was that everyone had basically worked for free. Not everyone, but the core team members had worked for free sweat equity. And by the time the funding deal didn't materialize, which is in March, I can date it was March 15th, the Ides of March uh, of this year, as soon as I found out the funding deal didn't fall through, there was a voice in my head that said, that's killed the company. And I didn't want to listen to that voice, but there was a voice in my head. And I remember the voice and the voice said, that's killed the company. Mm-hmm. But it, the way that really manifested, though, in a very practical sense was that because there wasn't money to pay people who had been working a very long time, myself included, without getting paid and had depleted their own savings and had depleted their own capacity to just sort of give more for free, what happened was people basically said, I have to go and make money now, right? So director of marketing goes off and does that. Hardware person goes off and does that. And I realized at the beginning of April that if I don't do that, I'm going to be bankrupt. I I, I literally poured my life savings and two years of my life into this company. And I've gone, okay, we can't move forward like this. I can't even, I'm in a position now where I can't even spend the time to go find other investors because that's time I need to spend paying rent. Mm -hmm. And it gets into this very tight position where, you know, a few months ago, everything was flowers and it was going to be brilliant and we're going to sell all these units and we got our investors to invest even more money. And all of a sudden now, three months later, they're hearing a very different story. And that made them mildly upset. Right. So let's talk about um, talking about the rest of the people. So uh, your spidey sense kicked in earlier this year. Yeah. When did you have that conversation with your co-founders? Well, it, it started fairly immediately. The conversations happened around... Because different co-founders, you have different conversations with according to what their involvement is and what your expectations are from them. And so my technical co-founder, Keen, it was for him, it was just a matter of I can do this work, but I need to be able to do other work so I can earn money. With one of the other co-founders, it's like, look, I've poured too much time and I need to just go work on my other things. Good luck. And so it was almost more that they were having this conversation with me than that I was having this conversation with them. You know, one of the one of my blessings and also one of my curses is that I'm an eternal optimist. I will always want to see the best side of something Um, that gives me. Uh, an enormous resilience and persistence, but it also means that sometimes I can be chasing things longer than is rational. Probably something you want in an entrepreneur, but not necessarily something you want in a business, yeah. right? It's it's that it's that interesting conundrum. And so what we tried to do in April, as I realized I wasn't going to be able to really work on this anything like full time, was to be able to hand the company over to one of the investors to be able to um, run the ship and find investment. And when when he backed away from that, you know, and I, I thought everything was essentially signed, sealed, and delivered. I had informed all of the investors this transition would be taking place, why this transition had to happen. Part of that, my job was to communicate very clearly what was going on and what I was doing to remediate the problems we were having. But once that fell through, I was left in the position where I was essentially the sole man on deck sole director, sole... There wasn't even an employee because employees get paid, but just the sole person keeping the lights on with a very limited amount of money in the bank and realizing, okay, this is clearly it. It's done. 
The only thing that I can do now is try to do the honorable thing, make sure all of the debts get paid and wind up the company. Yeah, right. So did you consider any other options? Like what, obviously, you know, in, in startup land, we're always thinking about different paths we could possibly take to get to, you know, a success, whatever success may be. Right. So obviously winding up the company is a fairly uh, large full stop. Yes. Um, any other things you thought about? Well, the thing is, is that, yes, you could entertain the idea of licensing the technology or selling the technology off. But the thing is, all of those require months of time and investment. And who's going to give that time and investment if everyone has to be off making money? And this is the problem with having that trough there, is that if that trough is deep enough, you don't even have enough resources to crawl it out in order to realize investment or realize the, the investment back from the people who had put the money in. Yep. So speaking of investment, how do you um, how do you how do you reconcile this with your investors? You know, they, they take a risk, right? You don't you can't. There is no way. The only thing you can do is be honest with them and say, look, this is what's happened. You know, we had all of these bright prospects. These are the reasons these prospects didn't pan out. And this is what I've tried to do, and, and we were transparent through that process. Okay, that didn't work. The only thing I know that we can do right now is to basically close up shop, and you're all probably gonna, you're all going to lose your investments as a result. And people have different reactions to that. You know, we I have had six months of fending off very expensive legal complaints from one of my investors because they they took it I don't know if you can call it personally but they they really took it as a failure on my own part and did what they could legally to goad me into doing something differently but there really isn't anything different to be done so all I could do is sort of defend myself against those complaints and continue moving forward other investors are sad but more copacetic mm-hmm. so it's it's that kind of thing and you know if there was a failure on my part here, did I did I not explain that startups are in, in inherently risky investments? You know that you're essentially waiting for a unicorn. You know the amounts of money lost were, from an individual perspective, substantial, but from uh, a funding perspective, were relatively were, were tiny. You know there was about one hundred and thirty, hundred forty thousand dollars invested. So in that sense, it's not a lot of money. But if someone's actually in for fifty thousand dollars, and it looks to them as if I've set fire to that pile of money, then they're going to be upset. So um, you're about to put Moore's Cloud into liquidation. It's already in liquidation. It is in liquidation. Yes. So um, that's not something that a lot of us like to think about. Right. But can you talk us through what that actually means in shutting down a company that has shareholders and investors? So if it's a voluntary liquidation, right? So in other words, if there's enough money around to pay off the creditors, then the way that you do that is you actually file what's called a Form 520 with ASIC, which is a statement of creditworthiness or whatever. It's a statement of solvency. That's what's called declaration of solvency. You get your accountant to fill it out and basically says, yes, you will be able to pay your debts over the next 12 months. Once that document has been filed with ASIC, you then have to call a meeting of the shareholders. And this is in the Corporations Act. And the shareholders have to vote with a 75% majority. So a supermajority, they have to voluntarily vote to liquidate. Now, there's actually two paths you can go by at this point. You can also voluntarily deregister, in which case the corporation decides how the assets get distributed among the shareholders. And then you just go to ASIC and you deregister. And that doesn't cost anything per se. 
But if you're going to do a volunteer liquidation, you need to appoint a liquidator. And we appointed uh, William Buck in, in Sydney as the, the former liquidators. And you propose the resolution and say, look, we're also going to be able to pay these folks. I think we agreed to pay them around $10,000. There's enough money around to pay them. And we have to vote on that resolution. So I called that special meeting of the shareholders. The shareholders were all there. And the meeting, uh, the resolution was proposed, unanim- proposed and then accepted unanimously. From that moment, the liquidators are effectively the directors of the corporation. And although I remain director, you know, in, in the interim, I'm acting at their direction. And so what we're doing is we're finding the list of all of the assets, which in most cut were not substantial. There was some stock. There are the molds that are, we're using to make things, some intellectual property, but nothing really major. Just getting that all tallied. And they're going through and just selling it. And quite often it's being sold to folks who have created it, right? And so people are getting good deals. And, and you know, in some ways, if Moore's Cloud couldn't make a go of this, if, if one of the investors wants to buy the intellectual property and make a go of it, I mean, it's sad, but then it means the product's not dead. And, and the only thing I've ever heard from people who use the product is how much they love the product. So... Although we couldn't get enough investment to make a go of it, it would be sad if that meant that it was the end of holiday because it's a great product. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully what comes out of the sale of assets is that someone will be in a position where they can actually turn the key on the production line again. Right. Did you guys ever consider, you know, um, open sourcing anything? Was there any opportunity to... to It is all open source. I mean, the the source code is all open source. It's all on our GitHub and as are the drawings. Right. So that was never an issue. I think the only thing we didn't do is the mechanical drawings for the case and everything. Right. Um, And maybe the Gerber files for drilling the holes. I think those are the only things we did in open source, but everything else is open source. So it's completely open for people to be able to take right. it. If they want to build it again on their own and, and make it, they're able to do that. We, we never wanted to close that door because that's not the barrier to entry here. The barrier to entry is building a production line, yeah, which is true. expensive and time-consuming and is very detail-oriented. And you know, I've learned all about that through this process. Well, speaking of that... Um you know, they, we talk about um, failure being all about learning, and um, so uh, yeah, you know, what's, a, what's a couple of big takeaways you've um, you've learned? Um, you know, during the last couple of years, you need to vet your investors. Uh, the problems that I've been having with some of the investors are because I failed to vet them adequately. And when you're in a position when you really, really need money, and it was, this is the case, and it's almost always going to be the case with a startup you will tend to go, oh my God, it's great, someone's giving us money without actually looking the gift horse in the mouth. Well, kids, look the gift horse in the mouth. Get a good look down the throat. Look them up on LinkedIn. What else have they done? Why are they doing this? Why are they interested? Who else in the community have they worked with? What do they have to say? You owe it to yourself and to your co-founders and to your other investors to do this because otherwise essentially what you're doing is you're opening the company to an influence that will probably be more destructive than constructive over a period of time. So I think that's that's one big thing. Um, I think the second thing is that you can fool yourself about your capital requirements for a period of time, <laughs> but you can only do it for a period of time. 
and particularly in hardware. Hardware is much less capital intensive than it was five years ago, right? Just look at what we were able to do. But that doesn't mean it's not capital intensive relative to, say, someone who's doing a mobile app. It is. And you have to frame your need for capital, your need for investment, and your investment strategy around that. So the mistake that I made in planning for the business was that And it's not even a mistake. It's just the way the calendar worked. We were so busy getting the product to market. So it was exactly a year ago. We had had the production line fall down at the beginning of November because one of the components from one of the suppliers was faulty. And we actually had to fly our senior engineer to China to test it, to find out, and then go back to them. And they had to go replace the part. So we lost a month. So just this time um, a year ago, we're just getting back on our feet. And now I know the next thing I have to do is raise capital. But the problem was that it was so much work getting that job of shipping the product out that the, the timeline that we needed to raise capital, which really has to be around six months, we didn't have. We really only had effectively around two months. And it simply wasn't enough time to raise the capital that we needed to keep the company going through that hump because a startup is going to need to go from you know, 100,000 to close to half a million relatively quickly if it wants to keep the doors open. And there was simply not enough hands on deck and enough focus on that because we were focused on shipping product because that's what we knew we had to do. That was priority one, to be able to get us over that hump. And so we fell into this trough and we weren't able to get out of it. And mm-hmm. so you need to, as impossible as that sounds, you actually need to be doing both of those things at once. You think that, you know, you had the CEO hat on. Yes. Um, you know, were you able to delegation a thing that, you know, that a learning out of that, being able to lean on some others to do the, the details or there was, just wasn't enough people around? There's just not enough people. I know. I mean, I mean, everyone was focusing in their area of expertise. So that was never a worry because I was never going to be able to run the manufacturing because I had never done it before. What I did was watch what happened as the manufacturing was run, you know, through Robert Tiller and uh, Lisa, who was working with Robert Tiller, who ran our manufacturing for us and, you know, earned hazard pay because she was watching this process fail and then get fixed again. I could not have been able to do that because I had never done it before. So my job was to manage that process and make sure that all of the resources were being fed to that process because that's my job as CEO, but not to actually do that. It is my job as CEO to make sure that everything is happening, but at the same time, go and raise money. And there was not enough of me to go around. Yeah, cool. So yesterday, we were at the conference Above All Human, Mm. which you were emceeing, and um, there was some successful entrepreneurs up on stage. But it seems like a lot of those guys were lucky. It seems like a lot of them happened to be in the right place at the right time. Persistent as well. Were you guys unlucky? Early, I think is what it is. I mean, I'm I'm sure now that I've always been sure that within a couple of years, all Christmas lighting and pretty much all accent lighting is going to work like this. I have been consistently between five and 20 years ahead of things. I mean, when it comes to VRML, 20 years ahead, right? The difference between VRML and WebGL is linguistic. It's not functional. And so I'm, I thought with Moore's Cloud that I really had sort of arrived along with the market. But I actually think that we were still a little bit ahead of the market. So timing is important. Luck is important. Connections are important. Persistence is important. Intelligence is important. But I think the thing that we don't tell startup entrepreneurs enough, and we probably need to, is that, in fact, some of this is luck. 
and you know it's okay that's why persistence is important because the more times you play the more opportunity you're getting to have that lucky moment but uh, again if you do this over and over again you're also going to find yourself perhaps behind your peers relative to where you could be if you went and worked as an engineer or as a marketing executive or as a banker so there's an opportunity risk associated with that there is matt thank you very much no worries my pleasure thank you mark MYOB saves businesses time, helps improve cash flow, gets invoices paid faster, gives real-time visibility of profit and loss, and makes payroll easy. With MYOB, you can create, send, and track customized invoices. This is awesome because Australian businesses can wait on average 43 days to get paid. With MYOB, your clients can pay you directly from your invoices. People who use the MYOB online invoicing solution get paid four times faster. MYOB software will let you know when you've been paid, then update the accounts. You don't have to lift a finger. MYOB's online solutions make pay runs quick and easy, ensuring all of your tax and super payments are compliant with the Australian Tax Office. You can save half a day every month on processing employee pay. MYOB's mobile app means you can create a quote on the job, send invoices straight from the app, and even get paid on the same day you invoice. 1.2 million businesses in Australia and New Zealand use MYOB. Startups, sole traders, and small businesses, all the way up to companies with hundreds of staff. Whatever your stage or size, MYOB has a solution for you. Twista listeners will get a free 30-day trial, and the first 50 people to sign up will also get $100 in cash. Go to myob.com slash twista for your free trial today. We're back in studio back in 2018, and it's four years later, four years since that interview with Matt Allen. And you can hear, I can hear how upset I was, how almost hopeless it felt, but at the same time, how important I felt it was to sort of share this because I could tell even then that I was becoming a different person because of that failure. And A few years ago, there was a real fetish in the startup community around failure, that you had to fail as fast as possible, that you had to fail to progress. And I don't argue the truth of any of those things. I think that all of those things are true, but I think that we consistently downplay how failure feels. And if we do that, then really what we're doing is we're only telling half of the story. And part of what I want to do in this show is to tell the entire story, not just what it feels like to be in the depths of failure while you're shuttering your businesses, while you're worried about your investors taking action against you and all of the other things that you see when you are depleted emotionally and financially in every way because of the failure of a business. But what we actually can find in that failure is pretty amazing because now four years later, 
We can see some things very clearly. And the first of those things that we can see is that I am a far better business person than I was when I started Morse Cloud. Now, I'm not perfect. I will never be a perfect business person. In some ways, my head is always too much in the clouds. I am reality focused, not so much by design, but by necessity. But I can, because of that failure and because of what I learned by running a business, both running it and running it into a ground, I can give much more realistic business advice. I can help people to understand what the important things are to focus on and what the things are that they should ignore. And this was, I think, very hard one because I had to learn that in my own business. And I did learn it. And I was certainly learning as rapidly as I could. We ran out of money. There was no question about that. But I was certainly learning as rapidly as I could. And in particular, I can give advice to hardware startups. And I know there are at least two examples where I have talked to people out of doing hardware startups because I make it very clear to them by relaying my own experience exactly how hard it is to be successful as a hardware startup. That despite all of the enormous advances that have been made in rapid prototyping and China as a giant design house and all of the new chips, that hardware is still hard. Hardware is still at least a full magnitude harder than software businesses are and that you have to be prepared for that level of detail and control and refinement and mistake making at scale and at cost in a way that you don't need to worry about it with software because software is cheap and easy to replace. So hardware startups do come to me and people do send hardware startups to me and we have very in-depth conversations and it's very good for me to be able to see when they are making the decisions correctly and it's even better when I can help them avoiding some of the mistakes that we made because there's no reason for any startup to make the same mistakes we did if they can benefit from what we've learned. I can also give much more realistic business advice in the sense of being able to plan for the future. Do you understand what's coming up? Do you understand what your capital needs are? Do you understand what your fundraising needs are? Because I made all of these mistakes and I can see a business starting to make these mistakes or starting to walk down the line in the wrong direction. Because I can say, look, if you walk that way, you're going to find yourself in this position where you're not going to have enough cash and not have enough time to raise the cash you need. So you need to start to think about raising this money now. You need to do it quickly. You need to do it effectively. And here's how you do it. And in fact, in our last episode, I really did dive into detail about how companies need to ask for money because I see this as being one of the most important aspects of running a startup. And there's another kind of, I guess, empathy that you possess when you've had a failed business. And that empathy is something you can't fake. You really do have to have been through the passage of failure in order to have the empathy for the business that is not doing well. And, of course, empathy means to feel with someone, not to, not to feel because of someone. That's sympathy. So empathy can only be created when you've been through the experience. And I have to say that that kind of empathy is invaluable because that kind of empathy really does allow you to be able to talk, I think, constructively to entrepreneurs when they're not doing as well as they think they should be. And you can counsel them that that is both completely normal and that there may be a time where they actually need to reassess the decisions they're making around that failure. The hardest decision at Morse Cloud, and you heard this very clearly in the interview, was the decision 
to pull the plug on the business. No entrepreneur ever wants to have to make that decision because that is the final admission, not just to yourself, but to the world at large that you have failed. And every entrepreneur will resist making that decision for as long as possible because so much of themselves are bound up in it. But making that decision, as horrible as it is and as hard as it is, is the beginning of everything that comes after it. And in some ways, it's important to be able to talk to someone who has made that decision and has come out the other side and can tell you that it is important to give you something to look at beyond the immediate horizon of that failure. But very constructively, it meant that when I was asked earlier this year to be an entrepreneur in residence at the Incubate program, I was able to do that job. And I honestly did not think when I was asked that I had the skills needed for that role because in some ways I expect that when you're an entrepreneur in residence, you're going to have to have been an incredibly successful entrepreneur. But maybe that's not really the point. Success and failure are very important to us because of how they change us. But both of them, I guess, are really just as important. And I didn't know that I had acquired the skills in failure that could allow other businesses to succeed. I had no idea. And it wasn't, in fact, until I put those skills to work as entrepreneur in residence that I actually recognized that I had those skills in myself. Apparently, I needed to do it poorly before I could do it well for others. And the biggest thing I've realized, I think it's something that transcends even what I've learned about a startup, is what I've learned about myself. I have learned that I can risk. And the key thing here is I think I've learned how to risk much more wisely. You know, I managed to sort of dump my life savings and my career into Morse Cloud because I was basically risking it all on a single throw. And I think I've probably learned not to do that anymore. I think in some ways the failure has made me more conservative in the sense that it's unlikely that I'll found another high growth startup. That doesn't mean I won't be involved in them or won't advise them, but it's, it's unlikely, I think, for me at where I am in my life that I'll actually do that. I'll leave that to folks who are younger and hopefully wiser. But it has made me more likely to risk things on myself, to invest in myself, to build business and brand for myself. I really had to master the idea of marketing for Moore's Cloud to be a success. And Moore's Cloud had at least some market awareness, even if it didn't have the sales that we'd always wanted. And even if it took longer to get to market, we were able to build market awareness. And that market awareness became a real tool in my arsenal. And I think the proof of this is that I've done far better as a business person, both just in sort of my exposure, but also in terms of actually my dollar volume in the years after Morse Cloud than in the years before. It's as if the years before Morse Cloud were all performed in a kind of fog. I was doing things, but I didn't really understand the rhyme or reason. There was no strategy. There was no path. I was just doing them. And after Morse Cloud, everything was planned. Everything was deliberate. There's a path. There's a strategy. It doesn't always work, but that doesn't mean there isn't always a strategy in place. 
It's really funny because around the time that I was thinking of starting Moore's Cloud, I was also being offered the opportunity to go and get a PhD with someone that I really wanted to work with at Flinders University. I thought it was going to be absolutely fascinating. And I did weigh out the possibilities. And there was something that was so alluring about Moore's Cloud that I, I, I shelved the idea of doing a PhD. But after Moore's Cloud, and after what it cost and all of that, I, I, I started to joke about the fact that, OK, I didn't get a Ph.D., but what I did get was, in some sense, a business degree. I got an MBA. Yet I think now it, that it was actually something far more than that. It was something that was far more important than an accreditation because it was an experience that incorporated a lot of what you learn in a business degree, but also was the real world experience of both building a company and running a company and then shuttering a company and understanding that you can actually be good at some of these things. You're never going to be good at all of them, but that everything you're learning along the way becomes part of you and becomes part of what you are going forward. And so now, four years later, I'm actually discovering that I have this array of skills that I didn't know that I had and that are the direct outcome of the failure of Moore's Cloud. And so while I can't recommend failure as a strategy for growth, I can say that when it does happen, every one of us needs to understand that failure is probably the best learning form that we have, that all of us in all of our failures are being offered an amazing opportunity to learn and that all of us in our failures are becoming far better at what we do. So four years on, where we are now, yes, I could probably do another startup. I don't really have the desire. I'm enjoying the other things that I'm doing too much. But there's a deliberateness. There's a focus that's clearly come out of the work that I did. And I think that if we all think about failure in this way, if we all think of a failure as something that is going to happen and that presents opportunities that are probably even greater than the pain of the failure, then maybe in that failure, and most entrepreneurs will face failure at least once and probably multiple times during their careers, in that failure, we will be able to hold on to the seed that we are creating a better thing in ourselves. Entrepreneurship. It's the heart of the student experience at the University of Technology, Sydney. With almost half of UTS students wanting to create their own jobs or start their own companies, equipping students with the tools to become entrepreneurs has become critical to their success. Sydney's leadership and strength as Australia's largest startup ecosystem requires a steady, well-supported pipeline of entrepreneurial talent. Working at the heart of this ecosystem, UTS plays a critical role, inspiring and connecting thousands of talented students into that pipeline. UTS is committed to ensuring a thriving and growing base for the startup sector, investing heavily in this future today for Australia's tomorrow. Get in touch. Email startups at uts.edu.au to find out more.
We recently launched a new segment for Series 6 of This Week in Startups Australia, asking all of the many incubator and accelerator programs running across the country to spruik their programs to twist the listeners in their own words. And this week, we're going to hear again from Mark Gostowski, who runs the Collider Accelerator at QUT Creative Enterprise Australia. Take it away, Mark. My name is Mark Gostowski, Chief Executive of QUT Creative Enterprise Australia, and we run Australia's only creative tech accelerator, focused on supporting creatives that have something that they want to bring to market that has a component of tech with a collision of creativity, design and business. We've been running the Collider Accelerator for two years. In that time, we've taken 20 startups into global markets, everything from music tech, wearables, AI, VR, machine learning, marketing tech, all fit in under the creative tech space. Our accelerator runs for three months, provides $30,000 of investment at about 4% equity, and it also includes the only trip over into Asia to bring the startups into an Asian environment and immerse them in, immerse them in Thailand, where they'll get to present at TechSource, one of Asia's largest tech conferences with about 12,000 people. What we find is that creatives often have difficulty in properly articulating business models. And Collider is designed to really support creatives in building globally scalable business models through tech. We've had about 20 companies go through so far and some fantastic successes. This last batch alone, we have a number of companies turning over in excess of $50,000 as part of the program. Our next intake for Collider is going to be in December 2018. And you can find out more at qutcea.com forward slash Collider to put in an EOI or ask some more questions. Creative 3 is back for 2018, and once again, I'll be your MC. This year, Creative 3 looks a little bit different. September the 14th will be the night of nights for creatives, a three-course dinner celebrating the trailblazers, disruptors, thought leaders, and futurists. Creative 3 is designed for and by creative enterprise professionals to address some of the key challenges facing the industry, offering the rare opportunity to contribute to these important issues with some of the best creative minds on the planet. The future is creative. Seize it. Save your spot at the table at creative3.co. A few weeks back, I was invited by a startup in Sydney to become a director of that startup, which is an enormous honor, and it really means that they value my advice. But I had a moment's pause there because I also realized that being a director of Moore's Cloud put me on the hook for a whole bunch of responsibilities that, in fact, I wasn't fully across at the time I accepted that role at Moore's Cloud. Now I am fully across those roles. I am fully across the responsibilities of what it means to be a director of a company. And so while I didn't turn them down, what I did say is I was going to need to think this through carefully and I will actually need to do a lot of due diligence around this decision because this is a company that I do want to help, but it's also a company that I want to help without actually hurting myself. And this, I think, frames the journey over the last four years from sort of entering in, not knowing, not understanding, just sort of blindly doing to now actually being considered and using that consideration to offer the best parts of me. 
Big thanks to Twister sponsors MYOB, UTS, and Creative 3. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to Matt Allen and Mark Gostowski for joining us on this episode. Now, we've recently rebuilt and relaunched our website at TWIStartupsAUS.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows. It's got all the interviews. It's got all the photos, all the links, all the stories. Check it out at TWIStartupsAUS.com. We'll be back soon with more great stories from the heart of Australia's startup community. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 